Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream this morning. We're glad that you're with us. We are again in Romans chapter 8 in our morning service here at Faith Baptist Church. This is message number 9, and we will finish Romans 8 next week with message number 10. So this morning we are in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 through verse 36. You know, one of the great themes in the book of Romans, and especially in Romans chapter 8, is the believer's security and assurance. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are secure in Him. Sometimes you may not know it. Sometimes you may not feel like it. And so not only should we have security, which the Bible tells us definitely that we have, we should also have assurance, which the Bible tells us we can have and we ought to have. Let me remind you of a few of the verses just from this book, or, or excuse me, from chapter 8, that tell us these things. Verse 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 said, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, of course, with him. And verse 28, you know well, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, there have always been those who mistakenly think that the doctrine of once saved, always saved equals some kind of license to sin, right? Yet we believe in security. We believe that once you are saved, you're always saved. I think it's interesting that Paul, in giving this great book, uh, anticipated that very objection, anticipated that some would say that. So back in chapter 3, he brought it up. Let me read 3, 7, and 8 to you. Paul says, and he's giving that person's argument. Someone will say, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, quote unquote. Then he says, as we slanderously, as, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. And then Paul ends with this statement, their condemnation is just. In other words, for saying to God, you must be lying to me. I know you say it, but it just can't be true that I have eternal life. Your judgment is just, he says. Well, there's no greater statement on eternal security in the book of Romans than these last verses, beginning in verse 31 and actually going all the way through verse 39. We're going to take half of them today and look at the other half next week. We've already pointed out in last week's message in verses 29 and 30, by the way, a very theological statement the most theological 
uh, of the statements in this book, and this book is full of them, which give us great confidence. These last two verses that we looked at, 29 and 30, they give us confidence in God's sovereign ability to save and to keep. If there's any doubt that God can't keep you for eternity, uh, those two verses spoke to that very thing. But immediately, when he's done with those two verses, he begins a Q&A session with his readers. He begins to talk to us and ask us some questions. As a matter of fact, you can see it, I'm sure, in your text if you wanted to count. From, but from verse 31 through verse 35, there are seven question marks. You'll find them at the end of seven sentences, seven question marks. Now, four have become very familiar and popular because they begin with the word who. So in some of those verses, you see that interrogative in the personal way, who, who can oppose us, who can charge us, who can condemn us, who can separate us. But actually, there are seven question marks. I'm going to take all of them, but I am going to combine in verse 35 the two questions into one because it really is one question. So in my outline that you have before you, there are six questions for us that Paul addresses to us after he has told us that God has made us secure. He's told us that once we're saved, we're always saved. And so he's going to ask the questions for us, and he's going to answer them. So if you'll look at those and follow me through, I've uh, given you some uh, uh, subpoints underneath too uh, from these verses. The first question is in the first part of verse 31, just simply, what shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say? What can human beings, what can puny man, men and women, say to God about this? How could you change it? How could you doubt it? Well, let me begin by asking you personally, what is your answer? What do you say to these things? What have you said to the great doctrines of the book of Romans and also in chapter 8? You know that this book says that you're a sinner. What do you say to that? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you understand that? This book also has said very plainly that Jesus Christ died for you. While we were enemies, Christ died for us in chapter 5, verse 8. Do you understand and believe that? This book has said without qualification that salvation is a gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this book has made it plain that salvation is forever. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So what is your answer? What have you said to God when he's made these promises? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior? I think it's interesting Paul puts that question right up front and, and uh, has us answer that question, then he's going to talk to us about the assurance of our salvation. So you might say, yes, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I hope that that is your answer. Look ahead to verse 38 and 39. If that is your answer, Paul says, I am persuaded then that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is God true? 
He said earlier, let God be true and every man a liar, if that's the case. That's what he says to us. So, do you know him as Savior? You know, when Paul gave us the armor of God, remember that in, in the book of Ephesians and then again in, in Corinthians, he described the helmet that goes on your head. As a matter of fact, he said it this way. Um, he, he said, take the, in Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I think the helmet in the armor of God pictures the assurance of the believer. Can you imagine a Roman soldier going out on the field to battle with swords flying around and spears and javelins and everything in those old ways that they fought, and here's a soldier that has no protection on his head? You know what he'll be doing all the time? He'll be ducking. <laughs> he's, he's not going to be fighting. He's going to be making sure he doesn't get hit in the head. This afternoon, if you watch your favorite football team play in the NFL uh, uh, playoffs, and you see your favorite running back line up behind the quarterback, and he's getting ready to take the ball, and you look at him, and he doesn't have a helmet on. I guarantee you he's not going to be doing an offensive play. <laughs> he is going to be doing a defensive play to protect his head. And I think the helmet of salvation is be like a soldier who's fully protected. You get hit in the head, you're pretty much done, you know, <laughs> in warfare. But have your head uh, covered so that you can be offensive and not defensive in what you do. So, uh, have you been in fear? Have you been kind of ducking all of your life? Have you let your service to God be hindered because you're always afraid you may have lost it or maybe you'll do something to lose your salvation? You don't need to feel that way. You can have the assurance and be offensive in your uh, Christian life. So what should we say? What have you said to these things? But in that same verse, verse 31, the second one is, well, then who can oppose us? Notice, if God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to see that, that little word, who, which again appears four times in these questions. Who means personal things, people. Who can separate you from the, uh, from the love of God? Who, who can bring anything against you if God is for us? What personal beings can do that? Who could do it with you? Somebody says, the atheist says, well, I don't, I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe there's any life after death. Does that discourage you? Can, can somebody say that and really oppose you if God is for you? Somebody says, well, I believe there are many ways to God. It really doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, everyone will get to God eventually. And you know that's not true. Does that bother you? Somebody else will say, you know, I believe God is a God of love. He would never send anybody to an eternal hell of fire and brimstone. God just wouldn't do that. Or somebody else says, you know, I just think if you're sincere, you're okay. If you just live a sincere, good life, you'll be okay. Can, can people say that and really oppose what God has said? When Paul, again, wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that somebody's going to come to you and speak and speak about another Jesus. Remember that? 
and he'll speak about another spirit. And then thirdly, he'll speak about another gospel, and I'm afraid you'll believe him. That as the serpent beguiled Eve in the garden, that these false teachers will beguile you as well. Who can do that when God is for us? Notice, many do, but God is for us. You know, it makes no difference what human beings say if God's on your side. As someone has often said, you and God in any situation make a majority. If God is on your side, who cares what people say? Who cares what anyone says? Paul was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and uh, he met this kind of opposition wherever he went. Uh, he met it in Philippi, and then in Thessalonica, and then in Berea, and then in Corinth, and in Athens. Everywhere he went, he met this kind of opposition. And uh, God said these words to him. By the way, he, he was dragged before Gallio's Bema seat. All of the Romans had Bema seats, from the smallest to the largest. And so Gallio was just small potatoes. He was just like a, a little mayor of the city of Corinth. But he had, he had a Bema seat, and they dragged Paul to the Bema seat. Not only that, afterwards he's going to be uh, taken before Herod's Bema seat in Caesarea and finally before Caesar's Bema seat in Rome where they'll cut off his head. But here's what God said to him when he was taken before Gallio in Acts 18. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have much people in this city. God says to us, no matter where you go before the doubters, uh, don't be afraid. Speak, have that helmet on your head, uh, and remember that the last beam of seat you'll ever be dragged before is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to hear the statement, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we, who can oppose us if God is for us? We'll see even more about that as we go along. Third question then, I have the word what in verse 32, but about halfway through the verse you see the word how, but I have worded that as, what will he give us? Now, this, I think this is kind of a parenthetical thought here. He, he interjects this to assure us and give us some comfort. Again, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Isn't that great? You as a child of God have those kind of, of promises so how did that happen? Well, I say, first of all, he reminds us that God gave us his best. He gave us his only son. There was that time when Abraham was asked to bring his only son, Isaac, the promised seed, the promised son, up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And as Abraham, in all faith, uh, followed through on that, God stopped him. And you have in Genesis 22, verse 12, he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I think that what Paul is saying, God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes can have everlasting life. From the moment you believe, 
into everlasting. And so he gave us the best. And I want you to notice before you, you leave that, that statement here in, in verse 32, that he said, but he delivered him up, he gave his own son, he delivered him up for us all. First of all, that means people. Jesus died for the people of this world, the sinners of this world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And notice the little word all. He did it for all, which means that we believe in an unlimited atonement. Anyone can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I can say confidently, paid for your sins so that you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so he gave his best. Paul at the end of one chapter said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. But notice I say also, if he gave his best, he will give the rest. And so we have at the end of that verse, how then shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What do you need? You need assurance. What do you need in this life? You just need his strength. You just need his encouragement. You need the promises from God and, and to rest upon those things. All things, I think, uh, include and maybe first and foremost is eternal life. I like Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 4.8. Godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You have promises for this life. You have promises for everlasting life. And so he'll give you all things. Let me make two further comments about that, about that thought. Number one, it would be impossible for God not to finish what he started, right? That uh, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He, if he gave you the best, that is his son, he'll give you everything else you need. Do you think that he would save you and make you a child and a joint heir with Christ and then not take care of his own children? He will give you everything you need. But I had a further thought, and that was this. How can God not judge the ingratitude of the world that rejected his son? How could he do that for sinners who need salvation, and then uh, uh, they turn away from him in ingratitude? Chapter 1, verse 21, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened? God judges that, and he should. As a matter of fact, when you look at chapter 9 and begin reading through that chapter, just the first few verses, Paul says, oh, Israel, you're, you were God's people. You had God's blessing upon you, and you rejected him. How could you do that? I would give my soul for them, Paul says, if I could, and yet they're lost. And so God will give us the best. God will give us the rest if we'll just come to him. So there are three questions, the first three. The, the next three, the last three, are the who, the three more of the four who's. And so these become very plain. Look at verse 33. That is, who can charge us? He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and now all of a sudden, this bringing a charge brings us to forensic language. That is, this is courtroom language. 
Now, how can somebody before the judge of all the universe stand up and make a charge against those he has saved, is what he's saying, those who are elect of God? How, how can you bring a charge that way? Notice I say again, many do. <laughs> that's, that's always Paul's answer. There are a lot that will. Now, this word elect comes out of verse 29 and 30, where we are uh, the chosen and called of God. And so how can uh, you make a charge against those God has saved? How can you do that? Well, somebody will say, well, he thinks he's better than the rest of us. And you see somebody standing up in a courtroom pointing a finger at the defendant. He thinks he's better than the rest of us. How, how can she really be a Christian? Somebody accuse you that way. I see them make mistakes all the time. How many accusations are made against us throughout our life? But though many or all can make accusations and make charges, only God can dismiss the case. And that's what he says here. It is God who justifies, who makes you just as if you've never sinned, who dismisses the case. I want to remind you of a verse that John writes in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you, uh, so that you sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. I'll come back to that word in a minute. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. I want you to listen to that word, propitiation, one of those big words in, in uh, theology. It, that word propitiation means the wrath of God has been removed from you. In, in that language, as I read it and as I have read about this word, elasmos, it would mean in a courtroom setting, case dismissed. He is the case dismissed for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. And so when that gavel came down on the desk and the judge hit it, he said, case dismissed. And that's what is taking place here. How can anyone bring a charge against you when the judge has said, case dismissed? I've already dismissed this case. I've already thrown it out of my court. That person is justified before me. That is what Paul is saying here. And if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no one in heaven or hell that could say to you, but I have this charge against him when the judge himself has said, case dismissed. We take it even further in the next question, and that's in verse 34. Who can condemn us then? Verse 34 says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Again, many do condemn us. Many take upon themselves to be judge and jury of everything God has ever said. Who are Christians to say what's right and wrong? Who are Christians to say uh, uh, these things about God? After all, I'm a good person, and I don't think you're any better than I am. These kinds of these kinds of uh, uh, condemning statements come all, always to us. But notice, who is he who condemns when it is Christ who did all of this for us? I say, secondly, the judge defends us. I should have put the word himself in there. 
the judge himself defends us. When I go back to that verse in 1 John, my little children, these things I write unto you, so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, we have a defender with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And listen to these words again. He himself is the propitiation. You know what this means in practical terms and theological uh, perspective? The judge is also our advocate. The judge himself is our defendant. Jesus Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. How, how can anybody condemn us when the judge himself has called us righteous? John 5, 32 for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. <laughs> People bring accusations uh, against you to the one who has dismissed it and to the one who, who uh, advocates for you. Notice what Jesus has done. And I love this statement. Paul must, have, Paul must have been shouting when he wrote this. Who is he that condemns? He said, it is Christ. Are you against him? Would you condemn him too? It is Christ, number one, who died and who is risen. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. You are saying that the gospel isn't enough to free a person? Are you letting someone say to you, though you believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you could still by your sin lose your salvation? It is Christ who died and rose again. And not only that, but notice further in that verse, uh, who is even at the right hand of God, he's ascended, who also makes intercession for us. He stands there as our advocate before the judge, defending everything that anybody ever says against us. <laughs> who is he then that condemns? How, you know, what, what are we to think about that kind of thing? Suppose here, here's the courtroom scene. And somebody stands up and says, well, I saw that person do such and such. The judge is sitting on his bench. The judge gets off his chair, walks around the table, goes and stands beside the accused as the defendant and says, I covered that. Goes back to his seat. Somebody else comes up, you know, and says, I think that person ought to pay for what he's done. The judge gets up walks around beside the accused as the defendant and said, I paid for that on Calvary's cross with my blood. He goes back to the seat and somebody else comes up and says, but I think they ought to be condemned for what they did. And the judge says, case dismissed. He himself is judge and defendant to us. Who can condemn in a situation like that, it is Christ who is our judge and our defendant. And one last thought in verse 35, then who can separate us? Who, again, people, and maybe some other things too, who can separate us? And notice I say, man can't and God won't. God can't by his own decree, by his own covenant to you, so he won't. 
And so here you find, notice in this verse, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And seven things are mentioned here. And I would break them into, into two kinds of groups. There are those human things that come against believers. Tribulation is one. Persecution surely is one of them. The sword has often tried to separate man from his faith. They took Paul's head off in prison. Did that separate him from the love of Christ? No, it sent him on to Christ's presence. Let me remind you of Hebrews 11, that great faith chapter, when you get to the end of it and the writer begins to talk about people who have been under persecution. He says in 1136, Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Of whom, he says, the world is not worthy. The world looks down on such people like that, and God says the world isn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith. Who is he that can condemn? Who can separate us uh, when that? Can these things do that? Can tribulation and persecution and sword separate us from the love of Christ? then I think there, there are some things that we could write down as natural disasters or just things that happen in life, distress, famine, nakedness, peril. Have you ever gone through a, a terrible time? I, I, you know, I, my heart, your heart goes out to somebody whose home has been wrecked by a tornado or, or flooded by, by a tsunami or or a hurricane or something like that. Sure, your heart goes out to him. Do you imagine that somewhere somebody said, well, God must not care much about me to let this happen to me. You ever heard such a thing as that? Yeah. And maybe you've had some kind of great trial, and in your heart you're saying, I'm not sure God really cares about me if he let this kind of thing happen to me. When they come, doesn't God care about you? Doesn't God keep you? Can that thing separate you from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus? And that's why I say, secondly, man can't, natural disasters can't, and God won't. It was in Jeremiah 31 that he said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. God loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. He himself said in John 17, 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost. John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Who can separate you from the love of Christ and Christ Jesus? There isn't a thing in this world above or below that can separate you from his love so i had one more verse here of course verse 36 is here as as he says as he concludes with it and he quotes psalm 44 22 you probably have a reference there somewhere in in your bible psalm 44 22 for your sake we are killed all the day long we are counted sometimes as sheep for the slaughter 
And yet, God, don't you keep us? That long Psalm 44 is a psalm about Israel. That Israel, here's God's people, and here, here's the psalmist writing, you know, as a representative of God's people, but saying, Lord, we're your people, but we're persecuted right and left. <laughs> we have enemies that come in and do this and do that, and, and, uh, and yet uh, we're your people, aren't we? And so Paul here quotes that statement. Of course that's true. This life isn't heaven, you know. We're not at the end of the race yet. We have to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. And really, in truthfulness, it's all of your life. You're headed <laughs> to the end of that valley. And it's pretty tough. And, and here we read in, in Hebrews 11 about all of those great saints that went before you. They sailed the bloody seas, as the psalmist said. Uh, can you escape that yourself? You may even be counted as sheep for the slaughter. But we'll get back to verse 37 next week. <laughs> yes, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That is us. So, folks, remain faithful because he is always faithful. And there is nothing in heaven above or in earth here or in hell under the earth past present or future that can separate you from the love of your savior have confidence in that and be strong because of it stand now with me if you will as you think about those words and let's pray and then let's sing a song and let's ask god to encourage our hearts and if you are here and you have struggled with this thing of security i trust that these words from god's word will help you today let's pray father thank you for such encouraging words uh, coming here at the end of this great chapter. Thank you, Father, that uh, uh, we have to answer to all of these questions. No, nothing can separate us. Nothing can condemn us. Nothing can judge us but you. We thank you for that. And so, Father, give us confidence, give us strength and courage and boldness because of these things in a witness for you. Speak to every heart today and do your work that you will to do in their heart. If someone doesn't know Christ as Savior, maybe words that I have spoken or someone else has spoken today, bring that person to Christ. And I pray, Father, that your people in your church would be encouraged today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in this song.